Doesn't that feel good? <laughs> Isn't God awesome? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. My name is not Glenn Murphy. It's an honor to be able to speak to you today. We're going to go ahead and go straight to the word of the Lord, and then I'll give you an opportunity to sit down. But it's great, once again, to see all of you here today. And I'm looking forward to what God is going to do throughout the remainder of this service. We're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 17 and look at verses 8 through 10 today. And this is pretty much where we're going to stay going to do a whole lot of scripture other than this today. But in the King James, it says in verse 7, and it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, that is to Elijah, saying, Arise and get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son. I'm going to make one last meal. I don't have anything to give you, preacher. Got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I'm going to go make myself and my son one last meal. I'm going to go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. If the Lord will help me today, I want to talk to you about dry brooks, bad plants, and new miracles. For those of you that have been with me and next over the last couple of weeks, you could also consider this when God's directions don't make sense, part two. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you once again for the powerful presence that's been in this house today, the way that you have confirmed that you want to do something here among us. Lord, we are anticipating, anticipating great things in your spirit. I know that you want to talk to somebody here in this house today. So Lord, help our ears to hear it. And help this mouth right here to say it the way it needs to be said so that before we leave this place today, we can say that I heard from God. We need you, Jesus. And it's really just got to start there. My admission that I need you. I need what comes from you and I need what flows from you, Jesus. So let's start right there today, Lord. I need 
you. Do what you will among us. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Turn to your neighbor. Give them a fist bump. Tell them how great they look. And God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you, Casey. Elijah was having what most of us would consider a bad day. He was a wanted man hiding in the wilderness outside of Samaria from some pretty powerful people that wanted him dead. And if that wasn't bad enough, there was a drought on in the land. It hadn't rained in quite some time. And now the little stream that he had been drinking from over the past several weeks and months had just dried up completely. Now when God first brought him here, the brook that the locals called Cherith had been this flowing healthy supply of cool, refreshing water. But as the days of the drought wore on, Elijah had watched his stream of water dissipate. What had once been a happy little brook turned into a sad little trickle. Then it was barely a puddle. And now it was nothing. No more water. Just this pitiful little dried up strip of sand and rocks out in the middle of nowhere. And the frustrating thing about this whole no water situation that was staring Elijah in the face was that really it was Elijah's own fault. I mean, after all, he had been the one to go to King Ahab and say, hey, look, buddy, God's not happy with you. And uh, to show his displeasure, there's not going to be any more rain around here until I say so. King Ahab hadn't been very happy at Elijah's news of the coming drought. No, he he wasn't happy at all. And Ahab's wife Jezebel wasn't too happy with him either. But all of that was easy enough to understand, though, because after all, Ahab was the wicked product of a wicked father, and Ahab was in an arranged political marriage with the Phoenician priestess and princess named Jezebel. And Jezebel had been determined to spread the worship of Phoenician gods like Baal and Astarte throughout all of Israel. In fact, Ahab and Jezebel had been so aggressive in their spreading of the worship of these Phoenician gods throughout Israel that some said that there were only about 7,000 people still faithful to Yahweh to Jehovah still living in Jerusalem. So Elijah got it. He understood why they would want to kill him. He was, for all intents and purposes, he was a virtual nobody in the kingdom of Israel. His hometown of Tishbe was a small and unremarkable place. Nobody knew Elijah's father. Nobody knew his mother. Elijah had no family to speak of much less a famous one. He didn't have some impressive genealogy listed throughout Scripture. There was no long list of important relatives for Elijah. No supernatural backstory even. No list of amazing accomplishments. Guys, if you open up your Bible and read 1 Samuel 17, it's like Elijah just appears out of nowhere. And as far as Elijah knew and 
the way that Ahab and Jezebel looked at it and, and the rest of Israel was concerned, he had just appeared on their doorstep out of nowhere. Elijah knew, he understood, they, they saw him as a troublemaker, all full of this bold talk and radical ideas about the true God of Israel and how he should be respected and feared and worshipped. So it was no surprise at all to Elijah that proclaiming his God, Jehovah, was going to take away the power of their sky god, Baal, and and keep it from raining, that it wasn't going to sit right with these people. You know, even his very name, Elijah, was an insult to Ahab and his queen. Elijah means Yahweh is my God. So not only did They hate him for what he believed and hate him for what he he stood for and and hate him for what he had to say, but they even hated his name. Now look, I've had some people hate me in my life. They hate the job that I do. Some of them hate the sound of my voice. But folks, I don't think anybody's ever hated me for my name. I don't know that you've been hated until somebody hates you For your name. But Elijah had no illusions about it. He understood. He was an unknown, unimportant, unconnected, out-of-touch, old-fashioned preacher for a God that most of Israel just wanted to forget about and move on. And he had made very public enemies out of the two most powerful and wicked rulers in the whole nation on purpose. So Elijah got all of that. Man, he understood it. He wasn't wasn't bitter about it. He wasn't groaning and crying and sobbing his way through some big why me session with God. Like we never do. I don't know why they hate me. Just trying to do what's right. They hate me. Or what we do. Well, they hate me. God, I don't like them either. And I'm not going to like them until they start liking me. He wasn't doing all of that. He wasn't upset at God and Elijah wasn't mad at life. It didn't bother him that God had led him out there to hide in the middle of nowhere. Because God's instructions had been pretty clear. He told him, he said, Elijah, I want you to go and hide by the brook Cherith. And I want you to drink from the brook. And I want you to eat the food that the ravens bring to you. For I have commanded them to bring you food. And Elijah wasn't an idiot. There's something to be said for not being an idiot. That was a joke. Okay, don't laugh. But he could see it. He could see what God was trying to do in his life at the time. God had sent him to Cherith. Cherith means separation. Cutting away or to cut off. So if God thought it was best for him to be cut off and by himself out in the wilderness, Elijah was fine with that. Because even though he was hiding from people who wanted him dead for just doing what was right, and even though Elijah found himself in a place of isolation and separation, God had certainly provided for him. And God had provided in miraculous ways. Now it hadn't come through conventional means because God sent ravens 
And ravens are notoriously greedy and they hoard food and they'll even hide food from their own offspring. We have to do that around our house from time to time. So the fact that a raven would bring him food twice a day, that's pretty miraculous, that's pretty amazing stuff. But even more astounding and more interesting to me is that ravens were considered unclean by Mosaic law. So God was sending Elijah a miracle twice a day by a method that challenged his expectations and preconceived ideas about what religion was all about. I just love that. It didn't line up with his theology just right. But if God wanted to provide him with a a miracle through some unclean, greedy raven, Elijah didn't have a problem with that. Because he knew God's provision doesn't have to come through a traditional means or method. It didn't have to be, Brother Merrill, filet mignon, carried in on the wings of a spotless, white, pure dove. It didn't even have to be a oneness Pentecostal raven. Because whenever you're hungry, out in the wilderness, the church the ravens go to on Sunday just doesn't matter that much. What mattered was that God had provided and God had proven himself true God had given Elijah the miracle that he so desperately needed at that point in his life. But now things were starting to get just a little weird. See, now the brook had dried up. And that was confusing because God had led Elijah here, hadn't he? Hadn't God told him specifically to go to this place? So why would God bring him here and let that happen? Why would God let the one thing that was sustaining him and nourishing him and keep him alive just dry up and disappear like that? What's up with that, God? I want to pause just a minute. Talk to you people that are here in this house today that are looking at a dried up brook and feeling cut off and isolated. I want to talk to those of you that have experienced the confirmation, the miraculous confirmation and seal of approval of God's will and direction. He gave you a miracle to say, you know what? That's exactly where I want you right now. But you've watched that miracle wither and dry up and wane and disappear. And you're wondering, what's up with that, God? Why would you do that to me? Why would you lead me specifically to this place, give me the miracle that shows me this is right where I want you, and then let it dry up because I need that? That's keeping me alive. That's keeping things fresh in my life. Well, let me tell you why it happened. It's because those places are never permanent. 
God never intended for you to stay in that place. Elijah couldn't stay cut off and separated forever. Cherith was not his destiny. It was just a stop along the way. So the brook dried up. His previous place of provision was no longer a valid option for Elijah. Because if he stayed there, he was going to waste away and die. Elijah had to move if he wanted to live. And the reason some of you are so miserable here today is because your brook dried up a long time ago, but you don't want to leave. You're stuck at this place of the old miracle because you can't trust him to provide the new miracle. God's trying to get you to move, but you're scared to leave a dried up brook. God's not trying to freak you out. He's not trying to scare you to death. He's trying his best to drop a new miracle in your lap. But you're never going to see that if you keep keep trying to squeeze one last drop of life from a source that God allowed to dry up a long time ago. He's not trying to hurt you. Y'all need to hear that. God's not trying to hurt me. Say it. God is not trying to hurt me. Look at your neighbor, tell him, God's not trying to hurt you. He just never intended for that brook to sustain you forever. That brook was only for a season. It was a temporary place to begin with. God knows that Cherith isn't your destiny. So sure, the miracle of the brook and of the ravens is pretty great. It's pretty awesome. Pretty unconventional. But God has a new miracle, a greater miracle in mind for you today. But he knew that if he was going to get Elijah moving toward it, the old source of provision had to dry up first. So the reason today that your brook is dried up is because God is pulling you forward, kicking and screaming into a greater miracle. A miracle that is of greater provision. It's a place that's better than just a brook and some ravens. Well, I thought that would go better than it did. All of that, though, that still wasn't Elijah's dilemma. Elijah's bad day wasn't because he was cut off and isolated. It wasn't because there were these powerful people trying to kill him, and it wasn't because God sent unclean ravens to bring him food. It wasn't because his brook had dried up. It wasn't even because God was saying, Elijah, it's time to move, and he didn't want to. The problem, the dilemma that Elijah had, the cause of his confusion and the source of his bad day, 
What had Elijah frustrated was that God wasn't making any sense. He wasn't making any sense at all. As a matter of fact, what God was telling Elijah to do sounded downright wrong. It just sounded sounded like a bad plan. Now, before you want to take me out and tie me to the stake and light the fire for saying that God had a bad plan, and before you get too hard on Elijah, I want you to hear me out. For those of you that understand the reference in true Curtis Young fashion, I want to tell you three reasons why this was a bad plan. The first reason it sounded like a bad plan was because God was leading Elijah in the wrong direction. 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 8 says, And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Now we read that and we think, that sounds like an okay plan. And Brooks dried up and pack up and go to Zarephath, that's okay. Sounds easy enough, written all neat and pretty there in the King James. It's real succinct, real tidy. But I don't know that Elijah would have been real keen on the idea. I want you to consider the reality with me today of what God had just told Elijah to do. What God really said was, Elijah, I know you've been living out here in the wilderness, cut off and isolated for a while, and you've been drinking from this disappearing brook and having to watch it diminish every single day, and I I know you've been eating food from ravens, but now I want you to walk. No chariot. No beautiful black Arabian horse. Son, you're not even going to get a donkey. I want you to walk more than a hundred miles through a drought, through hostile territory. See, Elijah knew all about Zarephath. Zarephath was a Phoenician town far to the north on the coast of the Mediterranean. Moreover, Elijah knew that Zarephath was in the territory of Sidon. And just in case he didn't know that, God made sure he knew. Because he told him, Zarephath is in Sidon. Sidon, folks, was ruled by Jezebel's father, a man named Ethobel. Like his daughter, Ethobel was a priest and a king. Jezebel had learned her love for those Phoenician gods from her papa. And like Jezebel, Ethobel had little tolerance for Israelites that were still loyal to that invisible God, Jehovah. And Jezebel's marriage to King Ahab of Israel, we know, was a political marriage. So she stayed real connected to Papa back home in Sidon. And so it's not hard to imagine that Elijah would have been a wanted man in those parts of the country. Posters up in the post office and flyers up on the telephone poles. There were people looking for Elijah and Sidon. By telling Elijah to go to Zarephath, God had ordered him on a hundred mile walk through hostile, enemy controlled territory where everyone knew that Ahab and Jezebel had a price on his head. Walking to Zarephath meant that Elijah would be exposed. He would be vulnerable, and it just wasn't safe. 
It was going to take days of walking to get there, depending on the terrain, anywhere from three to five days. I'm sorry, but this, this is just not a good plan, God. Matter of fact, this has all of the makings of a disaster. I mean, surely there's got to be a different path we can take to get me where you want me to be. There's got to be another way to get there. And I, I know you're talking to me, God. I know that you can provide because I've seen it. I've been drinking from the brook and I've been eating food brought by the ravens. I know, I know you can provide. But this plan of yours has me going in the wrong direction. This plan of yours, God, it doesn't make me feel covered and protected and safe. This plan puts me out there where anybody and everybody can take a shot at me. God, this is a bad plan. But Elijah wasn't even scratching the surface of it yet. The second reason this was a bad plan was because God was sending Elijah to the wrong location. God told Elijah to go to Zarephath. The name Zarephath means smelting place or a workshop for melting and refining metals. The name comes from a Hebrew verb, serap. Serap means to smelt, refine, or test. And moreover, God told Elijah, I want you to go to Zarephath and dwell there. Oh, don't look at me. That's what the Bible says in verse 9. Arise, get thee to Zarephath and Zidon and dwell there. This is not going to be a layover, Elijah. You're going to be there a while. You're going to get to know every street, every alleyway, every nook and cranny of this place of refining and testing that I'm sending you to. Oh, y'all not clapping on this one, are you? <laughs> You're going to wake up in the morning, Elijah, and you are still going to be in Zarephath. And you're going to go throughout your day and you're going to meet those people and you're going to deal with all that stuff and you're still going to be in Zarephath. And whenever you lay your head down at night, Elijah, you're still going to be at Zarephath. I want you to go to Zarephath and live there, Elijah. So, okay, God, let me make sure I'm reading this right. You want me to walk? Through a hundred miles of people trying to kill me, during a drought, exposed and vulnerable, so I can go live in a place whose very name invokes images of refining and testing. There's got to be a better way. I mean, can't we go somewhere different? Why do we have to go to Zarephath? How about, how about we go to somewhere, that, I don't know, something Hebrew for prosperity? Let's go to that place. That'd be a great destination, Lord. Or how about some, uh, something that means safe resting place? Or how about something that, that means God's favor? Let, let's find a Hebrew town that means God's favor and let, let, let's go there. Or how about the strength of the Lord? Or how about, God, you just find me a place that means I know where you are. That would make me feel a lot better. But refining and testing... After everything I've been through, really. I mean, you know my brook just dried up, right? 
God, don't you know that I've been cut off for such a long time and now you want me to go to Zarephath? That's a bad plan, God. You've got me going in the wrong direction and now you're sending me to the wrong location. I'm sorry, but that's just a bad plan. Now, I don't know if Elijah understood this principle at this point in his ministry. But it's really something that we need to get a handle on if we're going to do things God's way instead of trying to force it our way. So here's the principle. Y'all ready? (laughs) Here it is. The path to a miracle is always through uncomfortable territory. And the path to a miracle always leads us to uncomfortable places. Miracles don't happen when things are comfortable. Miracles happen when things are uncomfortable. I'm being very deliberate today. The path to a miracle always leads through uncomfortable territory. You don't have to like it, it's just Bible. When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery, they had to go through the Red Sea first. The water that the Israelites drank at Marah was bitter first. Before the walls fell, Joseph and the Israelites had to be out there for six days in a row, walking around the walls of the city first. Before Gideon could go face the Midianites and the Amalekites, that poor dude had to watch his army go from 32,000 down to 300. Thanks a lot, God. Before David could go out and swing the sling and kill the giant, he had to walk out there on the battlefield in front of every man of fighting age in all of Israel. Before that miraculous healing in the Jordan River, Naaman had to go through the fear and the terror of having leprosy first. Before the king would proclaim that Jehovah was the one true living God, Daniel had to go spend a night in a lion's den. Three Hebrew boys had to enter a furnace. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish before Nineveh ever repented. That's not just Old Testament stuff either. You don't get off because you say, oh, that's Old Testament. No, it's New Testament too. The demoniac of Gadara, legion, that dude struggled with his demons in the tombs before he ever encountered Jesus and got his miracle. That woman with the issue of blood suffered for 12 years before she ever received her healing. Peter had to step out of the boat and onto the water. Saul had to be struck blind on the road to Damascus. Paul and Silas had to be beaten and imprisoned before they were ever delivered. Guys, miracles never happen in our comfort zones where everything's great and convenient and easy. You don't need a miracle when everything's settled in your life. You only need a miracle whenever you're on the edge. When you're scared to death, when you're insecure, when you can get hit from any angle. Whenever your life seems out of control, whenever the mission seems so far beyond your resources. When God is the only thing that you've got. And that's when you need a miracle. We don't like to live there. So listen to me today, Elijah. Just know if he tells you to go to Zarephath, no matter how uncomfortable the journey, 
And it might look to you like it is the wrong direction. If God nudges you out of that place of provision that you've been in, no matter how uncomfortable the destination, if it looks like the wrong location, just know that my God has a history of providing His greatest miracles during our times of greatest need. That's worthy of a hand clap of praise right there. Jesus. The third reason it sounded like a bad plan was because God was sending him to the wrong protection. God said, get thee to Zarephath, which belonged to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain you. A widow woman. Not a king. Not a general. Not a soldier. Man, he didn't even get another prophet. Just a poor, struggling, hurting, starving widow woman. This was God's great plan for taking care of Elijah during a drought and people are trying to kill him. I'm going to send you walking through enemy territory. I want you to show up out of the blue in a hostile town and I'm going to put you with a widow so poor she can't even provide for herself, much less a fugitive preacher. Y'all can believe what you want to. But this part of the plan was so bad. It was so ridiculous. I mean, so far out there. My personal opinion is that God left it out whenever he first told Elijah to leave the brook. He didn't give Elijah all those details. I mean, sure, God told him that he was going to live with the widow, but I mean, surely God meant one of those really rare, uh, wealthy widows of the time. That's the kind of widow God was going to put him with. One of the, she's got resources, and she's got influence, and she's got plenty of room in her house, and she's got plenty of food in the pantry, and she's going to host all of these cool parties, and the political connected people will be there, and it's going to take some of the heat off of Elijah while he's living there. But this woman had... Nothing. There's no G on that. That's how bad it was. Not nothing. She had nothing. Forget swords. Forget armies. Forget political influence. This lady doesn't even have enough to eat to feed her own family. You left that part out, God. You didn't tell me how bad things were going to be whenever I got here. This is a bad plan. It's a bad plan. You send me to the wrong direction. You send me to the wrong location. And now you've sent me to the wrong protection. And God, I've seen some bad plans before. But this has got to be the worst plan in the history of worst plans. And we can chuckle. And I appreciate that response. And we can shake our heads at Elijah's little crisis of faith. But all that's happening there is my Elijah's giving voice to what our actions tell God all the time. Because the Almighty One, the great provider, the great deliverer, He's the creator. And He's trying His best to move us into the pathways of His will and direct us toward His anointed destiny. 
But because the direction, the location, and the protection don't make sense to us, then we start making life choice after life choice that tells God exactly how awful His plan for us is. Casey, why don't you come and give these people hope today? Folks, God's not interested in recycling the same miracle over and over and over again in your life just so you'll feel comfortable. I'm sorry. I wish that was true for me, for you too. But God doesn't want to keep you at the brook until you enter eternity. God is always going to be more interested in a closer relationship with you than He is with your comfort. He's going to be more interested in your development of that relationship than He is with you feeling safe and protected. God wants you close to Him more than anything else. He wants that relationship. He wants you to really, really know Him. He wants to show you new facets of His love for you. He wants to give you new revelations of His glory. Not just a brook miracle. Because that's just a little trickle of who He is. Now don't get me wrong, because a little trickle of God is still pretty awesome. But not just a raven miracle either, because that's just a little morsel of His glory. As powerful as that may be. But God wants to position you today for a miracle that brings new life to the dead things in your story. You keep reading in 1 Kings 17. You know, we go through the whole thing with the meal and the flour and it doesn't run out because she acts in faith. It's great. But then the widow's son dies. And Elijah prays for him. And through Elijah, God brings that boy back to life. 1 Kings 17, with this widow's son, is the first miracle of resurrection in all of Scripture. God had never done this before, it was a new miracle. That God's been in the protection business for a long time. That makes God sound like he's working for the mafia. He's not. That's not what I meant. But God's been protecting people and taking care of people for a long time. He's done that before. And God's been in the provision business for a long time, right? Abraham called him Jehovah Jireh. He's my provider. But God had never raised somebody from the dead before. It was a new miracle. It was a miracle of new life. Nobody had seen anything like that before. Not even Elijah. It was far greater than the water from the brook and the food from the ravens. It was even greater than the miracle of the oil and the meal in the widow's home that never ran out. This went way beyond provision and protection. I hope y'all are hearing this today. This was dead things coming back to life. 
dead relationships, dead futures, dead dreams, dead hopes, dead opportunities, dead passions, dead callings. There is a new miracle of life for you. For those dead things, if you will be willing to follow God's plan. Y'all stand with me today. Listen, the direction, the location, the protection, they don't have to look like a miracle. Calvary sure didn't look like a miracle to the people gathered around the cross the day Jesus died. I'm sure those disciples were pretty confused. It didn't look like a good plan. It looked like a defeat. It looked like the good lost. The cross looked like a disaster. Beaten, battered, and bleeding Jesus. He sure didn't look like the hope of Israel, much less the hope of the world. And the people that loved him and followed him had to be thinking, how in the world? Death on the cross was the wrong direction. Three days in the tomb is the wrong location. And all of that blood that Jesus spilled sure didn't look like the right protection. But the cross, the tomb, and the blood were exactly the miracle that humanity needed. Not this conquering Messiah riding in with an army and throwing off Roman oppression like so many people expected Him to. Like so many people wanted Him to. Jesus didn't give them the miracle they expected. And He didn't give them the miracle that they wanted. Jesus came to give them the miracle that they needed. What we needed. Freedom from the oppression of sin and victory over death and hell. He came to give them a chance at life. It's not going to look like a miracle. I'm going to ask you all to pray with me today. So how about Elijah? Did your brook dried up? That source of provision that sustained you for so long and you've had to watch it. A little bit less flow and not quite as refreshing as it once was and you don't know when, but at some point that thing dried up completely. And you are dry. So dry. God's plan hasn't led you the way that you thought it would. And you've had to walk through some uncomfortable territory. It's left you vulnerable and exposed. And led you to a place of testing and refinement. And you've lived there. Come on Elijah, I know. 
You've gotten really familiar with the back streets of Zarephath because it's where you've been every day. And what you thought was going to be waiting on you whenever you got there, it wasn't what you expected. God, you didn't tell me how bad it was going to be whenever I got to this place. Can I just tell you today, God doesn't have bad plans. He doesn't have bad plans. It really is the right direction. And it really is the right location. And it really is the protection that you need. It doesn't look like a miracle. But I'm telling you, it's exactly what you need today. God, we've tried today. We've tried to preach it in a way that they could get it, hear it, and understand it. And I felt you moving here. I felt the confirmation going forth in the Spirit. I know that you're talking to certain people in this room today. So God, as we open up these altars, I pray that you would move on the hearts of those that that you've arranged in order to be here. To let them know that it really is a good plan. It's not a bad plan. I'm going to take care of you. It might seem like the wrong way and the wrong place and the wrong protection, but this is all happening according to my plan. This is exactly the miracle that you need. The brook was a temporary place, and I'm pulling you. Come on, come on, come on, come forward. I've got a greater miracle, a miracle of new life in store for you today. There's going to be some dead things that are going to come back to life as you follow my calling, as you draw, as I'm drawing you in closer so that you can know me. Oh God, hallelujah. If this is registered with you today, I'm just going to ask that you come and pray. Maybe you want to come pray with somebody else. But God wants to talk to the Elijahs in the house. It's a miracle of new life for you here. I want to bring some of those dead things back to life today. Come on, Elijah. Come on, Elijah, where are you? Are you going to answer that call and let him draw you forward? Are you going to let him bring new life to those dead things inside you? Oh God, you gotta help us today.